Exclusive Books is delighted to present another homebrew podcast series, a celebration of South African writers and their books. Now 25 years old, Exclusive Books Homebrew 2022 is not the same old story, but a mirror and a window into South Africa, where we are, where we've been, and where we can go. A remarkable selection of history, fiction, memoirs, current affairs, and children's books on our most pressing and relevant topics, from identity to feminism, corruption to corporates, self-love and identity, and everything in between. Incisiveness, humor, self-reflection, and hope abound. Check out the full selection in all exclusive bookstores and online. Today's episode of Homebrew is presented by author, journalist, and fearsome cruciverbalist, Jonathan Anser. On August the 11th, 2008, Robin McGregor was murdered in his home in the small town of Tulbach in the Western Cape. The murder was especially violent and savage. Robin was stabbed 25 times in his head, chest and stomach. Robin was a much-loved father and grandfather. The murderer, Cecil Thomas, was quickly found, tried and convicted. When the traumatic trial ended, Robin's daughter, Liz McGregor, was certain of only one thing about the murder. Cecil Thomas was lying. Liz set out on a quest to find out what happened to her dad in the final hour of his life and what had happened to Thomas that had brought him to her father's home on the 11th of August that year. To do this, she needed to confront Cecil Thomas. The result of this journey is Liz's personal, painful and powerful book, Unforgiven, Face to Face with My Father's Killer. Welcome to the Homebrew Podcast, Liz. Could you please read an extract from Unforgiven? Thank you, Jonathan, with pleasure. Okay, it's a chapter called Can Liz Stop? It is at night that the Ob's Cafe comes alive. Now, in the bleary mid-morning, it is half empty, nursing a hangover. Towards the back, well away from the big plate glass windows, stands Chris Malchas, an anomalous figure in his fatigues and his erect soldierly bearing. We introduce ourselves and quickly get down to business. Sitting opposite him, still raw and jittery, I pour out my story. As usual, the tears come when I get into the detail of the murder. He doesn't say anything, just sits completely still. Chin resting on steepled hands, gazing unblinking at me. It's slightly unnerving, but I'm left in no doubt that I have his undivided attention. I ask the question that has been tormenting my nights, trying to make it sound businesslike because I'm embarrassed by my feebleness. If I go ahead with this, will I be putting myself in danger? Is it stupid to put myself on the radar of Thomas and the vicious gangsters he's enmeshed with? Will I be looking over my shoulder for the rest of my life? He answers with a question, phrased in the respectful third person of formal Afrikaans, his eyes boring into mine. Can Liz not do it? Can Liz stop? For a moment I'm taken aback. I've been expecting something measured, analytical, some case studies, some statistics perhaps, a weighing up of the pros and cons. But then it comes to me how intuitive, how astute his question is. He's instantly summed the situation up and given me the only appropriate response. Because of course I can't stop. I'm so fired up with adrenaline 
so aquiver with nervous energy that words of caution would have no effect. All I needed was the right person to hold my hand, someone with the right networks, knowledge and experience, someone I can trust. In that instant, I know I found him. Chris Malchas has just retired after 40 years as a warder at Polsmore Prison in Cape Town, the biggest prison in the Western Cape and nerve centre of the number gangs. I'm an expert in the areas of gangs. He works as a consultant, educating prison staff nationwide in their ways. I am to pay him, but his fees are modest. Art spills more of my angst. How shackled I feel by racial shame. How burdened by our country's history, by the atrocities committed by people of my skin color against those of Thomas's. How that knowledge undermines me and makes me question in my darker moments, my right to hold Thomas to account. Chris fixes me with a pull yourself together look and fires off more questions. Was Liz the architect of apartheid? Did Liz fight apartheid? Are you doing what you can do to make things better now? I answer meekly, no, and yes, and yes. Stop the guilt and the shame then. Don't let your shadow block out the light. Your focus must be daddy. Cecil Thomas not only took your father's life, he also harmed your family and brought fear into your lives. You have every right to call him out. Something changes in me with this conversation. It feels that after weeks of grasping at straws, of batting feebly at half-closed doors, I finally have traction. I gaze past Chris to the street outside. A homeless man with shaggy dreadlocks framing a thin face knocks on the glass, trying to get the attention of a young woman typing intently on her laptop. In another lifetime, this was my hood. I lived in observatory for a few years in the pre-democracy era, first as a student and then as a young reporter. Still then, mostly the domain of the white working class, rents were low and the Victorian terraced houses large enough to share with three or four friends. I remember earnest dust capital reading groups, furtive political meetings, and security policemen hovering in unmarked cars. I remember a brief, passionate love affair with a comrade, the different shades of our skin making it an illegal act, which only added to its intensity. Now the remnants of the white working class have moved north, and it is more racially mixed than most inner city areas. By Cape Town standards, property is relatively cheap, and it is popular with emerging artists and students. Chris is not comfortable here. Where you get students, you get drugs, he says bluntly. Where you get drugs, you get gangsters. Next time, we meet in the southern suburbs. Wow, thank you, Liz. There are many threads to this book, but at the heart of it is your dad, Robin McGregor, a giant figure who led a rich and extraordinary life. He worked for sugar companies, was the former mayor of McGregor, the founder of Who Owns Whom, and a crusader against anti-competitive business behavior. He had also nursed your mother, Anne, who had Alzheimer's. After her death, he moved to Tulbach to make a new life for himself. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Yeah, he was um, a very powerful figure in my life. You know, we were a close family. My mum was uh, Catholic and uh, my father was an atheist. But when he married, he had a promise to bring us up as Catholics and to respect her religion. She produced five babies in the first six years of their marriage, which was kind of, you know, I think a bit overwhelming for me. But most of us now are recovering from that. But so he was very driven by his family and, um, you know, very involved in the family. And so a very kind of engaged father. And uh, also quite a restless man. I think he was quite driven by demons. So we moved very, very frequently. Every couple of years, we kind of move on, which is how he got 
experience in so many different industries. And he realized that every time he left a particular industry, because there's a monster behind waiting to gobble up that particular firm. So at one point, you know, once he'd seen most of us through school and university, he went half time at his job and bought one share in every single share registry in the country. And then it was all on paper, added them all up and came to this extraordinary conclusion that 80% of the stock exchange was owned by just five companies. It was just this apartheid era, concentration of capital within mostly companies with a mining background. So yeah, I was always very close to him. Writing about his devastating and shocking murder must have been extremely painful. But there's also a sense in the book that it was cathartic and that it gave you some peace. Did it? Yes, it did. You know, as you said in the introduction, the trial was so bewildering. You know, firstly, it was so traumatic sitting there in this little stuffy room with um, the murderer like couple of meters away, day after day, went on for two months. Um, and then all kinds of things cropped up that we didn't expect, like the, you know, the really hideous forensic detail of how he was tortured and then murdered. And then also for the first time we learned there was a gang, there was a gang connection. You know, Cecil Thomas pleaded not guilty. He said he was set up by the gangs. So we never actually got to hear what really happened. And so at the time I really couldn't deal with any more of it. So once the trial was over, I tried to forget about it. But it gnawed at me. You know, I felt partly that I owed it to my father to find out what the real story was. So when something so profoundly devastating happens to you, it kind of shakes you at the very core. It's like an earthquake of your sort of being. It's something that doesn't go away. You can't just wish it away and say, you know, I'm over that now. So I thought that in order for me, maybe it's because I'm a journalist or maybe I've got my father's kind of, you know, relentless search for the truth, whatever it is. I just needed to get to the bottom of it. I needed to hear what happened to him in that last hour of his life. Partly because I thought there would be a way of saying goodbye, because I would hear, I would hear his words describing it, counter to whatever Thomas told me. So it was cathartic. And even though it was incredibly painful and difficult, I'm glad I did it. Cecil Thomas had become this monster in your life, and part of what prompted your journey was the need to exorcise him. In order to demonster him, you needed to humanize him. Can you tell us what that actually meant? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a very good question. That's exactly what happened. Well, what it meant was that I needed to find out where he came from. He was a very counterintuitive murder in that most murderers come from these terribly deprived, damaged backgrounds, and he didn't. The courtroom was full of these weeping women, you know, who obviously loved him. He was, he was a loved man. He grew up as a loved child. And he had an education. He was the first in his family to go on to tertiary education. He was a rugby player. He'd had no prior convictions, apart from one minor one when he was young. So there was a mystery there. What made him do this terrible thing? And I needed to find that out. And also because if you look in the context of the violence of our country, how incredibly violent crime is, you can't just say this was an evil man. You know, there has to be a context to it. So, yeah, that was why I went back and looked at his life. So this journey took you into dark territory, violent crime in this country, the drugs, the gangs, the prison system, and of course, dealing with your own Thomas-sized demons. How did you cope during this time, this four-year journey of writing? and being confronted by all these terrible things? Well, partly, I mean, what set me on that path was it was 2017, which was nine years after the actual murder. I was hit by a car and quite badly injured. And I think it just sort of shot me back into that post-traumatic stress disorder state, just completely overwhelmed by adrenaline. And I was convinced that within the next year, I wouldn't survive. I'd be murdered or I'd be hit by a car and killed. 
So I think in that state, it was a hyper alert, hyper state that I was able to just go at it because the only obstacles were put in my way by the prison system that um, I had to be sort of pretty determined to do it. But also I'd recently found a man who'd become my life partner, Alan Hirsch, and he was extremely supportive. I had him at my side and he made me feel safe. And that was a huge thing. What do you hope your book achieves? Part of my kind of thing as a journalist is just to illuminate things, just so we know what's going on and what the reasons are and how we came to be where we are and it's partly that, uh, with some sort of illumination in a dark corner, I think, and also just to hope that things get set right. I mean, what really enraged me was how difficult the prison system made it for me to see Thomas. You know, first, I just drove up to the prison where I heard that he was, Fourbert, and I just asked if I could see him. And they said, I must enter their victim-offender dialogue program. I said, fine, no problem. And they were so pleased to see me. They said, oh, this never happens. We always try and facilitate this kind of progress. You know, and usually we have to go and search for the victims and how you just turn up like a blessing. How wonderful. And I never heard from them again. And then they just kind of ghosted me. So, and that infuriated me because I think, you know, we, 75 murders a day we have here on average. That's 75 families left traumatized, angry, fearful. And then all these perpetrators, if they are found, are just stuck in prison. And then they get worse and worse because they get involved in the gang system. So there's no hope for the future, you know, which increases recidivism. It leaves the families hanging. And our country, the new democratic order, was allegedly founded on the idea of restitution and coming to terms with things through talking through our pain and what the pain caused by perpetrators to victims or alleged victims. I hate that word. And then a way of sort of finding something together, you know, finding a, a happier, more peaceful, more harmonious future together. And yeah, the prison policy actually espouses that. And then it just doesn't happen, you know. It's just no systems at all, I discovered. Do you think Thomas will read the book? And if he does, what would you like him to take from it? I hope he would just realize the impact of what he's done. And it would make him kind of come to terms with his own actions and, you know, maybe be a better person. That's what I would hope. Because I feel, I mean, some people accuse me of being too sympathetic to him. It was more than I want to contextualize him, I think. I wanted to understand how he got to where he was. I have no desire to reopen the trial. I have no desire to kind of find other perpetrators. Yeah, this was enough for me. He received a 30-year prison sentence. He's eligible for parole next year. And I guess the title of the book makes it clear that you're unlikely to support his bid for parole. Yeah, look, I think I'll leave this to the rest of our family to decide. But, um, you know, when a man hasn't expressed remorse and he hasn't acknowledged what he's done, you know, would he then be a danger to others? And having been, you know, deeply involved in the gangs ever since, would it be safe to let him out? You know, that's the question I would ask. Hmm. Well, with the prison system in the state, they might let him out without consulting the family. Yeah, I think it's possible, unfortunately. You've written a number of books. One was a biography of the DJ Kabzela, and then two rugby books, Touch, Pause, Engage, and Springbok Factory, What It Takes to Be a Bach. Those books were about Kabzela and rugby, and that was the focus of these books. But in Unforgiven, you've turned the spotlight on yourself. What is it like to be the focus of your own book and to put your life out in the public domain? That was the thing I struggled with the most. And it was partly, you know, the difficulty of being a writer, particularly in a country like ours, is um, writing other people's stories, as I did with Cabzella, as I did with a couple of other pieces I wrote. 
you know, it's such a sort of conflicted terrain, such a difficult thing to take on, that I felt the honest thing to do was also to look where I came from, the forces that made me. Finally, I had to do it. I mean, it was difficult. But also that became something of a catharsis because, you know, being white in this country is also a very, very complicated thing to be. Because inequality has increased over the years and white people are still at the top of the wealth pyramid because their families were able to accumulate wealth over the years, which black families weren't. Um, you know, it's still a very uncomfortable position to be in. You know, we're still in a position of you know, great privilege in a country where many people are don't have enough to eat. And you see the effects of this on the streets all the time. And I think it's quite a painful way to actually have to live. Yeah, so I wanted to examine that whiteness through myself, you know, and try to reach some sort of peace within myself about it, which I'm not sure I did reach, but I thought I understood more about it, having written about it. You write about your frustration with the concept of restorative justice, and part of that is being pigeonholed as a victim, a word that you you hate. There's a really profound scene in the book where you're telling your life partner, Alan, how you are uncomfortable with being labeled a victim because it implies you're passive and that you lack agency. And Alan tells you that you're not a victim, you're wounded. And you write, I'm delighted with this. Wounded is what I am. It implies transience, fluidity. Wounds can be healed. I can heal myself. Are you healing? <laughs> I think I am, actually. I really do. I feel so much better after having... I mean, all these interviews are quite painful because obviously I've got to go through it again, the publicity. But on the other hand, I also felt that was important because I've probably reached far more people than when you give people who actually read the book because it's not going to be a huge number of people who read the book, probably, given the dearth of readers in our country. And I sort of felt quite evangelical about the message that I wanted to put out. I wanted to kind of speak on behalf of these 75 families a day who kind of are bereaved. And, and also, you know, my anger about the system is not working. So all that is healing, actually. It really is. <laughs> Thank you, Liz. Um, Unforgiven, Face to Face with My Father's Killer is a brave, important and insightful book about Liz McGregor's painful journey to find out the truth about her father's murder. Thank you, Jonathan. This exclusive book's homebrew podcast was spread far and wide with the help of Vodapay. Vodapay is a super app that is available on all mobile networks. On the app, anyone from any network can send and receive money, pay bills and shop the amazing deals, all in one place. It really is one app for anything and everything. If you like it, Vodapay it.